Tonight, I'm going to talk about the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths, they are the foundation of the Buddha's teaching. We can call them the heart of the Buddha's teaching. Although many different schools with different interpretations have evolved in the course of time, the Four, found, the four Noble Truths are the foundation of all of them. In the Four Noble Truths, we have the Buddha's teaching in a nutshell. It's like a summary of theory and practice. So, these are the Four Noble Truths. First, there is Dukkha Satcha, the truth of suffering. Then, the second truth is Samudhya Satcha, which is the truth of the cause of suffering. The third one is Niroda Satcha, and this is the truth of the cessation of suffering. And the fourth one is Maga Satcha, which is the truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So, when we look at these four truths, we can see that the first and the second truths are uh, related to each other, and the third and the fourth truths are related to each other. There is suffering, and there is the cause of this suffering. And then we have a way leading to the cessation of suffering, and we have the cessation of suffering. So we see that they are in relation to each other on the basis of the law of cause and effect. And actually, this is another way of characterizing the Buddha's teaching. If there is a cause, then there will be an effect. If there is no cause, there will be no effect. Or, looks from the other side, if there is an effect, that means there must have been a cause. If there is no effect, then there has been no cause. Not long after the Buddha's enlightenment, one of his first five disciples went for arms round in the town of Rajagaha. Upatissa, who was later to become Venerable Shariputta, saw this monk walking on arms round, uh, walking peacefully, calmly, with a serene uh, face. And 
Upatissa was stuck by the side of this extraordinary monk. He and his friend Kolita, who was later to become Venapur Mukalana, so he and his friend, they were also on the search for the truth. They were searching the state of the deathless. And so, therefore, Upatissa followed this monk as he was walking through Rajagaha, and he followed him until he was about to leave the city. And there, Upatissa approached the monk, and his name was Venerable Asaji, and he asked him who his teacher was and what kind of teaching he was following and practicing. And so Venerable Asaji said, the Buddha is my teacher. And because I'm not yet very long in the order of the Buddha, I cannot tell you in very great detail the doctrine that my teacher is teaching. But the Buddha often says, of things that proceed from a cause, their cause has been told by the Tathagata and also their cessation. This is the teaching of the great ascetic. Upatissa was greatly impressed by this short statement. And because of his perfections were uh, quite advanced, he could immediately grasp the meaning of this statement and he reached the first stage of enlightenment. He became a Sotapanna. To reach the cessation of all suffering, this is the goal of the Buddhist practice. And this goal is called Nirvana. It is a state of complete peace and happiness, or the state where all kinds of suffering has ceased to exist. And the way which is leading to that cessation of suffering is called the Noble Eightfold Path. So, the cessation of suffering and the way leading there, this is the third and the fourth Noble Truth. But first of all, I'd like to talk about the first and the second truths. The Four Noble Truths, they start with the simple statement that there is suffering, or the truth of suffering. Somehow, this might not seem to be very profound, or something difficult to understand. We might say, yes, of course, there is suffering, we know, and that's it. We all have experienced some kind of suffering, and this can be either physical or mental suffering or unsatisfactoriness. But normally we, want, we don't want to go further into this because suffering is unpleasant. And what is unpleasant, we want to avoid it. 
our habitual reaction is one of avoidance or running away, turning away the face from that which is unpleasant or painful. And so we also don't want to speak um, unnecessarily about suffering. Anyway, there's enough suffering around. Why talk about it? But it's exactly out of these reasons that the Buddha said, because we don't want to um, look at suffering, we do not understand the nature of suffering or we do not understand the truth of suffering. And with that, we also don't understand the other three truths. And this is why we keep turning in samsara, keep turning in the endless cycle of birth and death. And therefore, we are being born again and again and again, and with that, we keep on suffering. We keep on being immersed in the truth of suffering or unsatisfactoriness. So in, un- in order to understand what, sh- what is meant by suffering or unsatisfactoriness, we should have a look at the Pali word for it. And this is Dukkha. Dukkha covers quite a big range of states for which we have no equivalent in English. Normally, it's translated as suffering or unsatisfactoriness. But if you have a closer look what the word dukkha uh, means, then we'll get a better understanding what is meant by it. So dukkha not only covers the obvious and apparent physical suffering, physical pain, or the obvious mental distress, mental suffering as intense uh, despair or grief. But dukkha also means everything like irritation, imperfection, disharmony, sorry and worry, frustration, disappointment, discomfort. So dukkha encompasses mental and physical suffering or unpleasantness or unsatisfactoriness. The Buddha defined dukkha as follows. Birth is suffering, old age is suffering, disease is suffering, death is suffering, to be united with the unpleasant is suffering, to be separated from the pleasant is suffering and not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, the truth of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, encompasses the whole of our existence. We can say life is suffering or existence is suffering. And this sounds quite heavy. We don't want to be confronted 
with this truth or with this reality. And as a result of that, we have become very skillful of trying to avoid it or trying to get away from it. And especially in our Western materialistic countries, we have devised so many things, so many um, uh, devices to blind us from these uh, truths. Just to name a few of them, the whole entertainment industry or the whole range of cosmetics that are, are available or the great variety of different foods or then we have the institutions and homes for the destitute, homes for the uh, handicapped people, homes for the old and destitute. Life is suffering and that's reality and therefore people uh, conclude that the Buddha's teaching is rather a pessimistic teaching. If the first truth was everything that the Buddha taught, then there wouldn't be much hope or there wouldn't be a very positive outlook to it. But as stated in the beginning, besides the truth of suffering, there are more, three more truths and they state the cause of suffering, the way leading to the cessation of suffering and the cessation of suffering. So therefore, the Buddha's teaching is in no way pessimistic. On the contrary, it's realistic. And these four noble truths, they just start with the truth that we all can relate to in one way or another. We readily recognize our physical pain as suffering. When we fall ill or when we have a headache, when we break a leg, when we get a cold or when we get stabbing pain in the knee, this we readily recognize as uh, a suffering. And because it's painful, because it's unpleasant, we want to get rid of it as soon as possible. Therefore, we go and see a doctor and then we take the prescribed medicine and then hopefully we get soon relief from our pain. Normally we don't want to face the pain, we don't want to deal with it and therefore we also do not understand the true nature of these painful sensations. And also in our practice of meditation, often we have to deal with unpleasant, painful sensations. Our legs go numb, our lower backs hurt, or we have um, great tensions in our shoulders, or we have this stepping pain um, poking in our chest. The aim of Vipassana meditation is to understand all physical and all mental phenomena 
in their true nature. And so when we get painful or unpleasant sensations in the meditation, then we should take this pain or unpleasant sensation as an equally valid object which um, should be observed and understood. So then we should try to penetrate into this pain and try to see as it really is without our preconceived views or without our uh, prejudices, without our fear or anxieties. My teacher, Sayado Ujanaka, or Chamye Sayado, as he is known in Burma, he often says to the meditators, pain is the key to the door of Nibbana. When you have painful sensations, then you are lucky because you have a good friend, a good friend who wants you uh, to be able to open the door of Nibbana. Therefore, you should not get angry or upset when you have pain. Pain is your best friend. And this is true. While observing pain, a meditator can get very deep and valuable insights into the true nature of the pain and at the same time insights into the nature of uh, any physical and or mental phenomena. When pain arises in the meditation, it's like the pain. This good friend is saying to the meditator, Hey, yogi, come on, look, here I am. You just need to look very carefully. It's all here. Everything that you need to realize is openly displayed here. Just come and look. But of course, especially beginners, are not very pleased to have such an invitation. Pain is regarded as an enemy and something that you have to get rid of immediately, instantly. But as practice goes on, then a meditator is able to open her or himself up to the pain and later on a meditator uh, realizes that pain is actually a good friend. And only then is a meditator able to uh, get a real good taste of the Dhamma, as the Burmese say. The Buddha said, birth, old age, disease, and death are suffering. Birth is both suffering for the baby and the mother who is giving birth. And on top of that, birth is suffering because with that, by being born, a being enters a life full with a whole range of other kinds of suffering. And that's why the great Thai medita- meditation teacher Achan Cha said that one should rather cry at the time of birth than crying 
when a person dies because with birth one enters a life full of visible and invisible suffering. In this context, context, it's interesting to know that the Buddha mentioned five kinds of suffering which are peculiar to women. Five kinds of suffering that only women experience. And the first three kinds of suffering, they have to do with the female body. So they are menstruation, being pregnant, and giving birth. And the other two kinds of suffering, they had to do with the social and cultural circumstances prevailing at the Buddha's time. One kind of suffering the Buddha mentioned for women was that when they got married, they had to move into the house of her husband and most of the time also the parents-in-law were living in that house. And the fifth kind of suffering for women is to be um, subservient to one's husband or to serve one's husband faithfully. Then the Buddha said, death is suffering. This is another fact that you would rather uh, run away and not face it uh, rather than accepting it and dealing it with an uh, appropriate attitude. The death of beloved one often causes uh, a great deal of suffering, of greed, lamentation. And this kind of suffering arises because we do not fully understand the reality or truth as it is. It's deep, it's rooted in our deep ignorance. And other forms of mental suffering are sorry and worry, hatred, despair, frustration, depression, grief, lamentation and anger. And all these kinds of suffering have their origin in what the Buddha uh, stated as to be united with those we do not like or to be separated from those we like and not to get what one likes. Now, people may say that there are moments of happiness. The Buddha didn't deny this fact, but he only pointed out that these moments of happiness are not everlasting and that they are subject to change. And because they are subject to change, they cannot be called real or true happiness. Can you remember when you were really happy the last time? Where is this happiness now? If you want to get it back now, can you do it? Instantly on the spot say, I want your happiness right now. 
somehow we know about the fleeting nature of happiness. And as a result of that, we have been so skillfully inventing ever new things, ever new uh, devices from which we derive our happiness. If we want to become fully enlightened, we have to deeply understand the truth of suffering. And in order to do that, first of all, we have to accept it and then open up our heart to uh, look at deeper and more profound levels of suffering. This is not an easy task at all. It takes a lot of effort, patience and perseverance and at times heroic courage to penetrate in ever deeper levels of suffering. To the question why enlightenment happens in stages, the famous Burmese meditation master Sayadaw Upandita said that it was so because one couldn't bear so much suffering at once. Now, the second noble truth is the truth of the cause of suffering. Whenever there is suffering, there must be a cause to that suffering. And the Buddha said that it is our craving and our attachment that creates all kinds of forms of suffering and that this craving and attachment keeps us turning in the round of samsara. We are not only attached to things and people, but we are also very much attached to our views, opinions or ideas. Letting go starts with external things. These can be things we don't use anymore, things which are not in fashion anymore, and so we give them away, or we give them to some charitable organizations. Things that we treasure and that we hold dear are more difficult um, to give away. As I said, we are also attached to our opinions, to our views, to our ideas. And to let go of them is a more difficult step. The reason for that is that often we identify very strongly with these opinions uh, and views. That's who we think we are. We believe in this everlasting I, me, or ego that holds uh, these opinions, that holds certain views. So, lastly, it's this attachment to this false notion that there is an I, a me, or an ego that is the cause of all kinds of our suffering. Or, in other words, it's the ignorance of not seeing reality 
as it really is. And as long as there is any kind of craving or attachment, as long we will not get out of suffering or uh, of samsara. Because there is this constant craving for um, pleasurable sense impressions, there is also craving for existence. Um, We keep turning and on the basis of this craving, um, we want to gratify it. And it is said that uh, this craving for sense pleasures is like drinking salt water. The more we drink, the thirstier we get. In some Asian countries, they use a special kind of trap to catch monkeys. And to do so, they take an empty coconut and then they fix a string to it and they fix that string on a pole or uh, on a tree. And then they put some sweets on the bottom of this empty coconut because apparently monkeys, they also like sweets. And then they cover the coconut and the cover has has a small opening which is just big enough for a monkey to put in his open hand because the monkey smells the sweet. And so then the monkey grabs the sweet and wants to pull out uh, its hand. But now, because the monkey is holding the sweets, uh, he's making a fist and the opening is not big enough to pull out his fist. So, there the monkey is trapped. It's nothing that um, helps the monkey trapped, but his craving, his attachment to the sweet. The monkey holds on tightly to the sweet. He doesn't let go of it anymore, and this keeps him trapped. If the monkey could let go of it, then very easily he could withdraw uh, his hand and he would be free. That's what all the teachers tell us time and again. Happiness and peace are not gained by wanting it dearly or by holding on, but by letting go. And Ajahn Chah, he said it in the following way. If you let go a little bit, you will get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will get a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will get complete peace. And complete peace, this means Nibbana, or the cessation of suffering. And this is the third noble truth. The first truth said that there is suffering. The second truth said there is the cause of suffering. And now the third truth states 
step, there is a state where there is no suffering. When the Buddha realized the unsatisfactory nature of his luxurious life in the palace, he reflected that there had to be a way out of this unsatisfactoriness. Just as there are the opposites of day and night, of warm and cold, of male and female, hot and cold, summer and winter, there had to be the opposite of death, namely the deathless. And so with this in mind, he started his spiritual journey. His goal was to find the deathless state. After six years of struggle, he finally experienced the highest wisdom and he could experience the deathless state. Or in other words, this is what we refer to as Nibbana. Nibbana is the cessation of suffering and it can be realized by the cessation of craving or tanha. The word Nibbana or Nirvana in Sanskrit um, is compound with, uh, of Ni and Vana. Ni is a negative prefix denying something and Vana means craving or weaving. So Nibbana, Nirvana means the state where there is no craving or the cessation of craving. As we have heard, the second noble truth states that the cause of suffering is craving, tanha. And so it logically follows that if there is no cause, if craving is absent, then there will be the cessation of suffering. This cessation of suffering must be experienced by every person, her or himself. No matter how much we read, um, study uh, about Nibbana, it is of no use to get the real taste of Nibbana. The Buddha also couldn't do it for us. Or he only could point the way. Until and unless we realize this state for ourselves, we never will know exactly how it actually tastes. This is like trying to imagine the taste of a fruit that we have never eaten before. Let's take the example of durian. I assume you know this fruit. While living in Switzerland, in Europe, I had never heard about this fruit. And it was only when I was traveling and when I came to Asia that I heard about this fruit. Well, first of all, I read it in my travel guide and it was described as a quite unique uh, fruit with quite a peculiar smell and it said that people either love it or hate it. 
And my first destination in Asia was Singapore, and it was not the season for durian, so I only could read the signs in the underground saying that one was not allowed to take durian on the underground. It was only when I was in Burma, and it was the season for durian, that I actually came to taste this very special fruit, and I loved it. (laughs) So then, when I uh, first ate it and tasted it, then I knew what durian tasted like. There was no more doubt. I knew durian tastes like durian. (laughs) It was quite unlike anything else. And the same holds true for Nibbana. Nibbana tastes like Nibbana. It's quite unlike anything else. And because it's quite unlike anything else, Nibbana is often described in negative terms because it's easier to say what it is not. So we have words like the unformed, the unborn, the unconditioned, or the uncreated, or the deathless. But we also have positive words which try to describe Nibbana. Words like ultimate peace and happiness, the highest bliss, emancipation, liberation, enlightenment. So when we use these positive words, we have to be careful that we do not confuse them with the happiness, peace or bliss that we derive from uh, on the condition of worldly experiences. Because the peace and happiness of Nibbana is not dependent on any outer uh, conditions, not even inner conditions. It's um, without condition. And so this is the real freedom. Because then we are free to create ever new circumstances or conditions upon which our happiness um, can be derived. The peace and happiness from Nibbana, they come from within. They come from a completely purified heart and mind where all the defilements have been eradicated. Or, said in other words, Nibbana is realized with the eradication of greed, hatred and ignorance. Although most of the people have not experienced Nibbana for themselves, it doesn't mean that Nibbana doesn't exist. It only means that their minds are not trained well enough in order to perceive it. It's like a little star in the constellation of the Big Dipper, which I was, which I never uh, perceived, which I never could see. When I was younger, I was very fond 
at looking at the stars at night. Many evenings I just would go outside and look at the sky and look at the different stars. And so I knew quite a few constellations like the Big Dipper and Orion and other constellations. And especially the Big Dipper was easy to locate on the sky and I thought I knew these seven stars which formed the Big Dipper very well. Until one night I was looking at the stars with one of my friends and then she asked me if I could see a little star which accompanied one of the main stars of the Big Dipper and she pointed out which of those seven stars was accompanied by this little star and looking up into the sky I just couldn't see that little star but she told me that it was there and that it was clearly visible so then I looked up again and then all of a sudden yes there it was I could see it although it was clearly visible all the years before I wasn't able to see it. I couldn't uh, perceive it. Although I could see, I was blind. And it's similar with Nibbana. Although it's clearly visible here and now to be perceived by the eye of wisdom, we do not see it. We do not perceive it. We are blind in a way. It's our ignorance that is blinding us. Our ignorance doesn't allow us to see which uh, really exists. Because the truth is not hidden somewhere and only to be realized by a few selected or initiated beings. But the truth is laid openly before us and it can be seen by anyone with clear eyes, with clear, um, with clear uh, mental eye, with wisdom. The truth is nothing complicated. Actually, it's quite simple or straightforward. It seems only the way to get there or to perceive it is difficult. And this leads us to the fourth noble truth, which is the truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. The Buddha not only said that there is suffering, its cause and its cessation, he, only, he also very clearly stated that there is a path leading to the cessation of suffering. And this path is called the Noble Eightfold Path. Before I will explain this Noble Eightfold Path in more detail, I'd like to say that this path is divided into three groups. They are Sila, Samadhi and Panya, or morality, concentration and wisdom. 
And here we meet another important aspect of the Buddha's teaching. It's this threefold foundation upon which the final liberation rests. It's this threefold training in sila, samadhi and panya, morality, concentration and wisdom. The basic foundation is sila or morality because without a purified morality there is no way to concentrate the mind and to gain wisdom. If we do unwholesome actions such as killing living beings or stealing then our minds will be overcome with restlessness, with sorries, with regrets and with fear, with anxiety and such a mind is very difficult to concentrate and it's very unlikely that the mind will get calm and tranquil and without a certain degree of concentration it's not possible to get insights to gain wisdom so to help our morality be pure and faultless there are certain guidelines which help us to have our morality purified and in the Buddhist teaching these guidelines are referred to as the precepts and there is a basic set of five precepts which you are all familiar with it's the extension from killing living being from taking what is not given freely from sexual misconduct from wrongful speech and from taking intoxicants so these are the basic rules which should be followed by anybody who is pursuing a spiritual path then the second group is samadhi or concentration to penetrate into the true nature of all phenomena we need a certain degree of concentration we need the ability to focus on our mind on either mental or physical processes in order to see clearly in order to understand these physical or mental processes a concentrated mind can uh, keep the defilements out and can give temporary happiness and peace but it doesn't have the power to uproot all the defilements to uproot all the defilements to eradicate our ignorance we need wisdom insight or understanding and this is the third group the group of Panya it's only through the deep understanding of things how they really are that we can get rid of our ignorance and that we can abandon all of our defilements which are the cause for our suffering so with wisdom we can eradicate the suffering and therefore we can attain true 
and lasting peace or happiness. It's with wisdom that we can dispel the darkness of ignorance and it's with wisdom that the light of understanding and um, insight uh, come to be. And therefore it is also said that the Noble Eightfold Path is a way leading out of the darkness of ignorance to the light of wisdom. The eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, they are right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And right speech, right action, and right livelihood are the three factors that belong to the group of sila, or morality. So with right speech, right action, and right livelihood, that refers to actions of body and speech which should not cause harm to any living beings, which should not cause any suffering to ourselves or others. And as a rule of thumb, we can say that we should treat other living beings in the same way as we would like to be treated. We should respect other beings' life. We should respect their possessions, material things, and we should respect their relationships. With right speech, we should use words that are true and beneficial, and we also should speak with a kind heart. Right livelihood means that we should learn our living by rightful means, earn our living by not harming other beings. And traditionally, in the Buddha's teaching, there are five kinds of earning one's livelihood that one should abstain. One should not engage in killing, like butchers do. One should not deal with slaves. Nowadays, this may also include some forms of prostitution or child trafficking. And one should not deal or sell or produce weapons, poisons, or intoxicants. So, following right speech, right action, and right livelihood, we pave the ground for our morality to be pure and faultless. The next group is the group of concentration, Samadhi, and it has also uh, three factors, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right effort means 
to be not too tight and not too lax. It means to have a balanced effort which brings good results. At one time, one of the Buddha's disciples, Venerable Sona, was striving with so much zeal and with so much effort that all he encountered was restlessness. And so the Buddha went to him and he asked Venerable Sona, Sona, before you became a monk, you were a musician. As a musician, you surely know which kinds of string produce a nice and harmonious sound. Does an overly tight string produce a nice and harmonious sound? And Venerable Sona replied, No, Venerable Sir. And so the Buddha asked, Does a lax string produce a nice and harmonious sound? And Venerable Sona said, No, Venerable Sir. Only a string which is not too tight and not too lax will produce a nice and harmonious sound. A string that is too loose is like indulging in the sense pleasures, whereas a string that is too tight is like overexerting oneself to the point of self-mortification. What we need is a balanced effort, avoiding the two extremes. We need to find the middle, and then we are walking on the middle path. With right mindfulness, that means to always be aware of what is going on, to be mindful of what is happening in our body and mind. And in meditation, mindfulness is the factor which makes sure that our mind is always on the object which uh, is observed. We also can call it not forgetfulness. When we do not forget, then forget, then we can be mindful and aware. And when mindfulness is constant and uninterrupted, then that will lead, lead to deep concentration. Then the mind rests one-pointedly on the object which is being observed. And so then this is right concentration. The third group, the wisdom group, has two factors. It's right understanding and right thought. Right understanding refers to that understanding which realizes all existing phenomena as they truly are. Right understanding penetrates into their specific and general characteristics and realizes them all as impermanent, unsatisfactoriness, unsatisfactory and impersonal. Right thought means this kind of thoughts which ha- um, 
by thought means cultivating thoughts of renunciation, loving kindness and non-violence. That means we should renounce to indulge in all forms of sense pleasure and we also should renounce to act with selfish or a greedy motivation. And thoughts of loving kindness and nonviolence should help to engage in actions which are not harmful to other beings or ourselves, which do not inflict any kind of suffering. So these are the eight factors which belong to the Noble Eightfold Path. And normally they are enumerated in the following way. Right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And they form the fourth Noble Truths. So, the Four Noble Truths, they were expounded by the Buddha in his very first discourse that he gave to the five ascetics in the deer park of Isipatana, near Varanasi. These truths were not invented by the Buddha, but they are universally existing truths. The Buddha only rediscovered them and he made them known to humanity and all living beings. The Buddha said that the truth of suffering must be realized. The truth of the cause of suffering must be abandoned. The truth of the cessation of suffering must be experienced and the truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering must be cultivated and developed. There is no magic formula that can free us from suffering overnight. If the Buddha knew such a thing, I am sure he would have told us. All the Buddha could do was pointing out the way and it is up to us to walk this way, to practice this way until we reach the final goal or the, the end of it. So may all of you be able to realize the Four Noble Truths and be freed from all kinds of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.